a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies, they're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. Are you ready to revel in wrong think? Because I brought a truckload of wrong think with me. Pull up a chair. Let's uh, let's sit down and uh, let's question the narrative. Let's exercise our prerogative to think for ourselves. Take command of our own lives, make our own decisions. And um, boy, I tell you, I've got some great stuff to share with you. I, I just want to share a little quick uh, personal experience. Over the weekend, I had the opportunity to to hang out with what I consider some of the greatest people on the face of the planet. And when I say the greatest people, I don't mean the richest, most famous, and, you know, influential people ever. When I say the greatest, I'm referring to the kind of people that I would trust with my life or with the lives of my children and my spouse, um, the kind of friends that I know I could count on in any situation. And I share this with you not to, to sound a dark, ominous note of warning, but... Can I suggest if you're feeling a little bit nervous about uh, what lies on the other side of a week from tomorrow, you know, when the election takes place, if you're concerned and you think, man, things could get ugly or maybe there could be more unrest. First of all, you're right. There could be. We're very, very polarized right now. And that leads to, you know, fairly volatile situation. If you want to assuage those fears, though, better still, if you want to turn that unrest or that unease in your heart into a more productive direction, can I suggest look around you and connect with the people around you? And, and I'm not saying you have to have a big formal meeting, but just touch base with, with the people in your life that you would trust without hesitation. Now, I realize for, for, for some people, that's just not going to be very easy. There are folks who are truly, you know, on their own. And if that's the case, then I'm going to suggest something even more radical, and that is pray to God. Ask him to place people in your life who can be that, uh, that moral backup if you need it. Or likewise, that you could be moral backup to them if they need it. All I'm suggesting is that uh, if more difficult times are ahead, just, you know, hypothetically, teamwork and common purpose will make such a world of difference. I know we all want to, you know, lone wolf McQuaid our way through life, and I don't want to bother anybody, I don't want to be a burden on anybody. But there is something to be said for people who are united in their hearts, who are united in their spirits, and who are looking out for one another. It's a lot harder to be fearful when you are caring about someone else. And that's where the sermon stops, I'm just making this suggestion just, you know, in case it's information that might come in handy at some point down the road. Think about the people you know that you trust the most. Make sure that connection with them is strong. That's all I'm saying. So, let's dive right in. First of all, thank you to our sponsors. Our sponsors this month include the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, Jeff Staples Real Estate, and Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. I don't know about you, but uh, I'm... 
kind of burned out on all the contention that's, that's, you know, typified this election cycle. And it's been going on a lot longer than just recently. It's not like, oh, this just came up in the last few minutes. No, it's it's been happening since actually even before President Trump was elected in 2016. It just has intensified. I thought there would come a point where people would get over the fact that, you know, they didn't get their candidate in. Sorry, Hillary fans, but that just, it didn't happen. And that, uh, you know, they would make the best of it, knowing that we'll have another chance in 2020. But it has instead been four years of deep, ugly polarizing. And it is, I think, very clearly tearing us apart as a country. Some would say this is by design. And I, I don't necessarily think they're wrong. I don't know who's pulling the strings or, you know, whose design it is, other than if, if it's by design, I suspect that it's uh, part of that larger battle between light and darkness that has been going on eternally. So if there's anybody who's really behind, you know, what's tearing us apart, putting us at each other's throats? Well, I'm pretty sure that uh, there is a source of light in the most broad possible sense, and there is a source of darkness in the broadest possible sense. I'm thinking that source of darkness is probably what's behind this. There's a terrific article from Hannah Cox. This is from the Foundation for Economic Education, and this is called... Uh, The title is, There's Only One Way to Stop Polarization from Tearing America Apart. And I want you to hear what, this is the, the subtitle here. When another person's vote has the ability to wield enormous power over your life and make sweeping changes in your community, that is going to lead to hostility. Doesn't that really sum up why people are so upset and feel like there's so much at stake in this year's election? Because it's not a matter of, well, you know, we're really just concerned about we want to get the best, the the good, honest, and wise men and women who will, you know, be sterling examples of representation and leadership. No. We're either scared to death that if those guys grab hold of the reins of power, they are going to subjugate us. They're going to turn us into uh, the equivalent of political slaves and punish us because we aren't on board with them. And they'll punish us until we either acquiesce or we're gone. And by the way, that is being expressed on people on both sides. So it's not like, yeah, it's just the left that does. No, there are people on the right who, who think that, well, if we get in control, you know, we're going to make everybody else, you know, our, our, our uh, I won't say slave, our mules. <laughs> they're they're going to feel our whip because, you know, we get to tell them what to do. This is why... Politics is such a poisonous proposition, even at its best. It's, it's about, how did Isaac Morehouse put it? It's violence clothed in theater. And I think this year, more than any year that I can remember, is where we have seen that for what it is. The lust for power, that uh, libido dominandi, to, the, the lust to control other people. And we're going to do it through political means. We're going to take a vote, and if we have the numbers... We're going to, you know, totally punish you because you weren't with us. Yeah, I can see where that might lead to a little uh, friction. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's tearing us apart. Here's what Hannah Cox says. She says, growing up in the early 2000s, I used to see those little coexist bumper stickers on cars all over town. But she says, I don't see them anymore. Maybe the bumper sticker trend faded. Perhaps she moved to a more conservative area. She says, let's be honest, those people were liberals. Or maybe people just gave up on the idea of 330 million people all getting along. She says, the idea of coexistence, unfortunately, does feel quite quaint these days. 
Polls and studies back up what we all anecdotally know to be true. Americans are deeply divided and increasingly hostile toward those with opposing views. Startling numbers of Americans say they would go so far as to fire someone based on their vote for president. Meanwhile, 56% say they expect to see violence following the election. Another 61% fear we are on the verge of a second civil war. Now, she says, to be honest, this friction shouldn't come as that much of a surprise. She says, have you ever marveled at how different we are? Or really contemplated the sheer number of ethnicities, nationalities, religions, cultures, or backgrounds represented in this country? Even before considering political ideologies, our country is filled with people whose lived experiences, beliefs, and customs are radically different. And that's not only true because of the diversity in the people who come here, it's true based on our own regional differences as well. She says, for instance, as someone who grew up in the South, visiting California for the first time, felt like visiting another country. The way they talked, the foods they ate, their clothing styles, all were radically different from where she grew up in Kentucky and Alabama. And to complicate matters further, she points out that Americans live in social bubbles. We're increasingly unlikely to know people who are different from ourselves. This can lead to bias, a lack of perspective on other viewpoints, and a simplistic understanding of other groups. She says, we really are 50 micro-countries that have chosen to coexist as one. It even says as much in our name, the United States. Unlike some other countries, we don't all share a common history, religion, ethnicity, accent, or culture. But she says, when you think about it, our success as a country is actually more surprising than our current division. Instead of worrying about the future, she says, we ought to be examining the ways in which this vastly diverse group of people has managed to get along and prosper for nearly 250 years. This is a feat the world has never seen before. And she says, we owe our success to the brilliance of the founders and the limited government structure they gave us. Now, this is the key. And unfortunately, we have to break away here for a moment, so we'll get to it after the break. The key was to limit government. By limiting government, you limit the ability of any one group or faction to exercise control or authority over the others. So this is something that makes a whole lot of sense. We're going to come back to it in a few moments. Again, an article from Hannah Cox from the Foundation for Economic Education. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article from Hannah Cox from the Foundation for Economic Education. I think she is right on the money when she talks about how there's just one way to stop polarization from tearing America apart. And one of the things she points out here about, you know, it's it's remarkable that we have managed to get along and prosper and grow as a nation over the last almost 250 years, despite how different so many people are. And it's not just, you know, because we're a melting pot and we have people coming, you know, from all these different countries and nations around the world. We're pretty different regionally. If you've ever lived in the South, 
if you've ever lived in the uh, you know the Northeast or been in Southern California, it's it's a much different culture, and that's okay. The problem comes when we start forcing one another around through the power of government. And so to that end, Hannah Cox points out from the very beginning, before we were this big and diverse, our system was designed to allow for peaceful coexistence among very different people. This is why each state possesses its own executive, legislative, and judicial branch, along with its own constitution. And the Tenth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution recognizes the political authority of the states, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. In other words, the founder's intention was always localized control. Now, the structure that she's describing here, the structure of government, is called federalism. The founders intended the states to operate as laboratories for new ideas and programs. So if a state tried a successful approach to a problem, others could take note and replicate it. On the other hand, if a state did something terrible, the harm was mitigated and it would impact fewer people. And the federal government was on hand to step in if a state infringed upon individual rights. Now, she says the founders recognized that a big centralized federal government could not adequately represent people from so many different places. They also knew it should not attempt to micromanage the lives of diverse citizens with varying interests. This is from Federalist Number 45, where James Madison wrote, The powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. And Hannah Cox says the objective was to ensure people in one state did not dictate the ways and rules of life for people in another. This structure also ensured people had a more direct line of access to their representatives in the states, meaning they could much more effectively participate in their political process and work to set or change laws that impacted them. In contrast, our federal government was given a limited number of functions laid out explicitly in the Constitution. These include the authority to coin money, regulate interstate commerce, declare war, raise and maintain armed forces, and establish a post office. But she says, of course, the federal government has expanded far, far beyond its original bounds. We have a gigantic federal government that involves itself in everything from health care to education to marriage to social media. And this is the root cause of our division. When another person's vote has the ability to wield enormous power over your life and make sweeping changes in your community, that's going to lead to more than hostility. In fact, it's unsustainable and could eventually lead to breaking up part of our country. She says people in California shouldn't be able to force their way of life on people in South Carolina or vice versa. We're very different people with different religions, cultural practices, ways of life, and population sizes. She says, famed economist Milton Friedman perhaps predicted and expressed this problem best. Quote, government has three primary functions. It should provide for military defense of the nation. It should enforce contracts between individuals. It should protect citizens from crimes against themselves or their property. When government in pursuit of good intentions tries to rearrange the economy, legislate morality, or help special interests, the cost comes in inefficiency, lack of motivation, and loss of freedom. Government should be a referee, not an active player, end quote. 
Hannah Cox says big government makes people fear one another and drives distrust. In a free market economy, people have to provide goods or services that improve the lives of their fellow man in order to make a living. In a crony capitalist economy, people instead petition the government to stomp out their competitors, protect their interests, and improve their lives to the detriment of their fellow citizens. In a country with limited government, citizens would be free to practice their religions, customs, and culture as they wish. A federal election would not greatly impact you or your neighbor. The federal government would never enter the equation on most everyday issues in a person's life. But in a country where people use the federal government to force their customs, religions, and practices on others, a culture war is formed where Americans feel they have to fight and defeat those who are different from themselves just to preserve their way of life. Does that not sum up the zeitgeist right now that rules our time? Holy cow, that is... That's that's the atmosphere in which we live. We have to fight and we have to defeat those who are different from us just because that's how we preserve our way of life. And by the way, they're just as sure that you're going to destroy their way of life too. As Hannah Cox says, this, this isn't sustainable. We're on a dangerous path. And if Americans are right to fear, she says Americans are right rather to fear violence, retro- retaliation rather, or even another civil war of sorts if we don't change course. So what's the answer? I'm glad you asked. She says a return to feudal, I'm sorry, federalism. We're going to talk about feudalism later in the hour. A return to federalism is the only realistic alternative and how we get out of this mess. Limited government and individual liberty are more than popular slogans. Many of those on the right need to return to these values as much as those on the left do. A limited government allows people to find local solutions, cooperation, and sustainable approaches to society's ills while ensuring that each individual person is secure in their natural rights and has the opportunity to build the life that best suits them. She says, if we want America to be great again, we'll remember what made us great in the first place, our diversity, our values of limited government and individual rights, and our commitment to a peaceful coexistence. That is American exceptionalism. I think that's a great point. And if there's a place where America has been exceptional, that's it. By the way, I want to follow this up with a quick note here from, uh, this is from Thomas Lorenzo. just a little uh, side note he posted on Lou Rockwell earlier. I don't know if you saw the 60 Minutes interview of uh, President Trump and, and Joe Biden with, uh, with 60 Minutes, I think it was Leslie Stahl who interviewed President Trump. Trump got up and walked out of the interview. And then he released the full, unedited interview ahead of time, kind of stole her thunder. But uh, Thomas DiLorenzo says, It's being reported today that uh, Leslie Stahl concluded, President Trump does not have a one-size-fits-all totalitarian socialist central plan for the federal government to micromanage the entire medical care sector, even more than it does now with its mountains of monstrous bureaucracy and inefficiency. And he says, This is supposed to be a problem. As with all ignorant and uneducated pop socialists, a.k.a. the media, Leslie and her 60-minute comrades know nothing at all about the subject, so they shout over and over again, Where's your plan? We need a plan, a plan, a plan! It obviously never occurs to them that we all have plans, including doctors, nurses, hospital administrators, patients, and everyone else involved in medical care. The issue... As F.A. Hayek famously pointed out in The Road to Serfdom, is who is to do the planning? 
free individuals who must bear responsibility, good or bad for their actions, or government bureaucrats, politicians, and other political hacks who do not. That really is the central question, by the way. And I love how he concludes this thought by saying, the more government plans your life, the less of a life you have as a free human being, and the more you resemble a slave. I know, that's, uh, that's kind of a, a crazy way to look at things, but it just happens to be 100% on target. So when people are clamoring, what's the plan? What's the plan? First of all, is it something government is supposed to be doing in the first place? I would refer you to Hannah Cox's article. Secondly, the more they plan for you, the less you get to plan for yourself. If you want to be a slave, I guess that's okay. If you want to be a free person, it's definitely not okay. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I really just, I loved Hannah Cox's article. And yes, you will find it linked on the show notes, in the show notes rather, on the uh, brianheidshow.com. Go to the show notes category. You're looking for October 26th of the year 2020. A year that will live in infamy. Unless, of course, 2021 is worse somehow. Knock on wood. I'm not hoping for that. So apparently the lockdowners are really going for it right now. They're pushing hard to embrace even greater restrictions on our lives and our livelihoods. And look, I know this is, you've heard this before, but it bears repeating. Okay, COVID case numbers are up, meaning positive tests. But does that mean that more people are dying? Does that mean that, you know, the hospitals have been overwhelmed? I've seen a lot of breathless reports, at least here in my home state of Utah. Well, you know, ICU beds are at capacity or they're nearing capacity. But it still doesn't give context. Again, is the, are they being overwhelmed with COVID patients on respirators? Are there other things that are bringing this about? What is the survivability rate, for instance, of those who test positive for COVID? Show me the statistics of how many of them have to be hospitalized. Show me how many die. Because the last numbers I've seen seem to indicate that it's still somewhere north of 99% of those infected survive. And I'm not trying to be insensitive when I say this, but I just have this hunch that most of us were put on this earth for something other than to live our lives avoiding a virus. Meaning this is just one of the risks that comes with life. And there, of course, are people who are at higher risk than others. Certainly, they should take precautions. Somebody had pointed out, I saw this on Twitter earlier today. Um, someone had pointed out they were at a, a, an amusement park here in Utah called Lagoon. It's a pretty known, play, pretty well-known place. It's kind of like Utah's Disneyland. And uh, someone was complaining to one of the uh, media outlets about, well, there were just so many people and not everybody was wearing their masks and they, they weren't social distancing. I just didn't feel safe. And the response that I saw, which I thought was so perfect, was, well, if you didn't feel safe, what were you doing there? If you feel like it's so dangerous, we ought not be gathering like this, why don't you stay home? That's your responsibility, not to sit there and try to impose your fear of risk on everybody else. Let them assume the consequences of their actions. You take responsibility for your own. And if that means if it's not safe enough to go out there and mingle with the crowd at an amusement park, then don't. 
Sorry, I'm I'm just a little bit hot under the collar that people have that sense of entitlement. Well, we should be able to do this. Nonetheless, yes, COVID cases, diagnosed cases, have been going up. And that's not surprising considering that testing has been going up. In fact, this this blew me away. Um, I saw the, the memo, I think it was Eric Mutzos posted this on Facebook just the other day, um, from the state of Utah, from, from the health department, or was it to... Was it the Utah State Health Department? Anyway, it was official letterhead. And it's, we will pay you $30 to voluntarily come and be tested. They're bribing people to go and be tested. How serious of an illness is it if you have to be tested to find out if you even have it? I'm not trying to be silly here either. I mean, I'm, I'm asking sincerely. But here we are. And so, yep, oh, well, you know, and there's false positives that figure into this. And, and I'm not pretending that this is some giant hoax or it's, you know, just it's all made up. There is no coronavirus. I'm just saying that the lockdowners are milking this for all they are worth, the data that they are going by. Well, let's, let's talk about this. On what basis are they justifying the need to lock it down tighter than ever before? Considering that uh, they've had some pretty serious lockdown measures and mandatory masks and so forth. Why is it that those positive tests continue to go up? And again, what is it in context of how many people are being hospitalized and how many people are dying? All we're being told is the cases, the cases, fear. Well, the folks at The Spectator over in the UK have done a very good job of sitting down. And uh, this is Tom Jefferson and Carl Hennigan, who have listed out the 10 worst COVID data failures. I don't know if I'll list all 10, but I'm going to give you a few of these just so you can get the idea that, that the government and its scientific advisors have been making constant predictions all through this pandemic, projections and illustrations. This is what we have to do. This is what we must do. But their figures are never revisited as the narrative unfolds, which means we're never given an idea of just how wrong they might have been. So this is a look back at the figures issued, which shows that the track record, eventually validated against the facts, is abysmal. And this is important because major decisions continue to be taken on the strength of such data. And there have been some really noteworthy failings so far. What's the consequence? Well, let's just say that it's put a lot of people out of work. It's put a lot of people into despair and hasn't really stopped the spread of a virus that's going to spread no matter what. That's just for starters. So the first and most important one is overstating the number of people who are going to die. This starts with the now infamous Imperial College of London Report 9 that modeled 500,000 deaths, this is in the UK, if no action was taken at all, and 250,000 deaths if restrictions were not tightened. This set the train of lockdown restrictions in motion. And the article says some argue that the Imperial's modeling may have come true had it not been for lockdown, but that doesn't explain Sweden. Academics there said its assumptions would mean 85,000 deaths if Sweden didn't lock down. Well, guess what? It didn't. And its deaths are just under 6,000. Then there's the leaked SAGE papers. Next came a print paper written by SAGE members to support a two-week circuit breaker leaked to the press. And the reports were striking. Quote, with no social distancing measures in place from now until January, the virus could potentially spiral out of control and kill 217,000 people, hospitalize 316,000, and infect 20.7 million. But with a strict two-week lockdown, the number of deaths could be reduced by 100,000, admissions by 139,000, 
and infections by 6 million. Now, the authors say, understandably, this made headlines, but when the lead author was interviewed by the BBC, he said he wished he hadn't put those numbers in the study because it was an extreme scenario only included for illustration. Hmm. Number three, miscategorization of COVID death. Under the original system, someone run over by a bus would be counted as a COVID death if he or she had tested positive for COVID but later recovered. And when this anomaly was pointed out by the Oxford Center for Evidence-Based Medicine, it turned out that even the health secretary was unaware what the COVID death data referred to. He ordered an immediate inquiry. Now, this illustrates how poor quality data from Public Health England was misleading the government itself. A new system was eventually set up counting deaths within 28 days of a positive COVID-19 test. This removed 4,149 deaths from the July 15th death count. Number four, overstating the effect of lockdown on reducing virus transmission. On 17 March, Patrick Valance, chief scientific advisor, stated that keeping the coronavirus death toll in the UK to less than 20,000 would be a good outcome. Yet on July 16th, he had to admit the UK's coronavirus outcome had not been good. After lockdown, a range of 7,000 to 20,000 deaths was given by Professor Neil Ferguson of Imperial College London. UK COVID deaths are now approaching 45,000. And then there's exaggerating COVID's impact on hospitals. And again, this is talking about the UK primarily. A leaked NHS report written in April warned the UK would need 25,000 hospital beds to treat COVID patients well into July. However, on 24 July, the daily count of confirmed COVID-19 patients in hospital was just 928 in England and 1,356 across the UK, roughly just 5% of the prediction. Number six, exaggerated fears about lifting lockdown. Imperial's Report 20 on 4 May contains a prediction of tens of thousands of deaths in Italy within three weeks of reopening. Yet by June 30th, just 23 daily deaths had been reported. Lockdown officially ended on May 4th. Internal travel restrictions ended on June 3rd. On 29 May, SAGE advisors stated that COVID-19 was spreading too fast to lift lockdown in England. The mobility index, based on the request for map indications from the web in June, was around 20% over the norm for the month of the uh, over the month for the month rather for the UK, but cases continued to decline to a low of 624 on June. Now there's more here. There's at least uh, 7, 8 and 9 and 10. Lack of access and transparency in data, reluctance to acknowledge uncertainties in evidence, the Excel spreadsheet blunder, the valence graph. The point is, the people who are telling us we have to shut it all down, whether it's in Great Britain or whether it's here in the U.S., more often than not are running on faulty information or they're making guesses or just assuming worst case scenarios. And therefore, you know, we're going to go ahead and have to use a sledgehammer to squash that mosquito just to be sure. But they don't count the costs, and and we're going to talk about this when we come back, because most of them are collecting taxpayer-funded paychecks. They don't have to worry about, well, my job might go away if if I have to lock down, or how am I going to pay my bills? No, they can sit back in their COVID bunkers with Amazon and, you know, DoorDash bringing their groceries to them, while the rest of the people try to figure out how do we make a living. And we can't even go so much as see and see our relatives. It's a new form of feudalism. We'll talk about it coming up next. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Man, I feel like I am uncorking a lot of information on you, and maybe I'm, I'm even sounding a little strident today. Not Streisand, strident. <laughs> but uh, this is important. And I'm frustrated because I see the, the fear porn still having the effect of people, oh, you know, maybe we really should cancel Thanksgiving and we shouldn't get together. And what if everybody gets sick and oh, we should, why aren't you wearing your mask? It's, it's been an incredibly effective exercise in how to control people through fear. And that's, that's hard to bear just from the standpoint of, look, I was not put on this earth to spend my days trying to avoid a particular virus. There's going to be risk in everything I do. Every cheeseburger I eat ramps up my possibility of heart disease. So, you know, I can cut back on my cheeseburgers. Frankly, the cost of beef has, has made that a little easier to do. But uh, bottom line is you cannot live your life in a bubble And you shouldn't try to live your life in a bubble. And you certainly should not allow control to people who want to put you in that bubble for purposes of their own interests rather than, no, we're really trying to protect you. I think the veneer on that, uh, we're just looking out for you, has worn awfully thin. And beneath it, yeah, that looks like just good old-fashioned control freaks with an excuse to start exercising dominion over others. Jeffrey Tucker, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, describes uh, what we see unfolding before us as the new feudalism. Listen to this. He says, on February 28th, the idea of locking down and smashing economies and human rights the world over was unthinkable to most of us, but lustily imagined by intellectuals hoping to conduct a new social political experiment. On that day, New York Times reporter Donald McNeil revealed a shocking article to take on the coronavirus, go medieval on it. Now, he was serious. Most all governments, with a few exceptions like Sweden and the Dakotas in the U.S., did exactly that. The result has been shocking. In fact, Jeff Tucker says he's previously called it the new totalitarianism. Another way to look at this, however, is that the lockdowns have created a new feudalism. The workers slash peasants toil in the field, struggling for their own survival, unable to escape their plight, while privileged lords and ladies live off the labors of others and issue proclamations from the estate on the hill above it all. Now, you may think that that's a little dramatic overstatement. I think he's dead on. That's exactly how I see it. They are removed from the consequences of the decisions they are trying to make for others. It's not right. Jeff Tucker says, Consider a restaurant at which I dined a week ago in New York City. The mask mandate is in full force, except that diners can take them off once seated. The staff cannot. The wait staff of restaurants wear plastic gloves, too. So here you have diners enjoying themselves with food and drink and laughter, many of whom work at home and have faced relatively less economic deprivation, which he says, I assume, given how much of this class of diners is throwing around on evening revel- revelry. Meanwhile, you have the wait staff and kitchen staff, too, with their faces covered, their voices muffled and forced into what seems to be a subservient role. They appear like a different caste. Society has decided to treat them as the ranks of the unclean. The lockdowns have turned a dignified equality that once existed between the staff and customers, all cooperating together to live better lives, and turned it into theater for feudalistic absurdism. 
And he says, the symbolism of this troubles me so much that my own dining experiences have changed from a time of socializing into a vision of tragedy that breaks my heart. Think for a moment about the main victims of lockdowns, working classes, the poor, people who travel for a living, those working in arts and hospitality, children locked out of schools, people who just can't convert their office jobs into living room jobs. They were never asked their opinions on policies that destroyed their lives and degraded their choice of profession. The main victims typically don't have Twitter accounts. They don't write academic articles. They don't write articles for newspapers. They aren't talking heads on TV. And they sure as heck aren't economically protected with a tax-funded job in a public health department in a state bureaucracy. They're out there getting food to the groceries, delivering things to your front door, hopping around in restaurants to make sure you get your food. They're in the factories, the warehouses, the fields, the meatpacking plants, and also in the hospitals and the hotels. They are voiceless, and not only because their masks impede their ability to communicate, they have been robbed of any voice in public affairs, even though their lives are on the line. But here's the real kicker. He points out lockdowns have done nothing to drive the virus away. This virus will become like all others of its kind in history. It will become endemic, predictably manageable, as our immune systems adapt to it by a naturally acquired immunity in the absence of a vaccine that may never arrive or will only be partially effective, just like the flu vaccine, which is to say we will reach herd immunity one way or another. And so Jeff Tucker says, ask yourself, who is bearing the burden of achieving this? It's not the blue check marks on Twitter, the co-authors of articles in The Lancet, and it's certainly not the journalists at The New York Times. The burden of herd immunity is being borne by those who are out and about in the world even as the keyboarded professional class sits home and waits. Under the influence of Professor Professor Sunetra Gupta, he says, I would call that absolutely immoral, futile, a new caste system concocted by intellectuals who've chosen their own short-term interests over the interests of everyone else. He points out that the frequently asked questions at the Great Barrington Declaration explains that the strategies to date have managed to successfully shift infection risk from the professional class to the working class. And he says, think about the implications of that. The politicians and intellectuals who put this new feudalism in place tossed out all normal concerns over freedom, justice, equality, democracy, and universal dignity in favor of the creation of a strict caste system. So much for Locke, Jefferson, Acton, and Rawls. The medical technocracy only cares about conducting an unprecedented experiment in managing the social order as if it consisted entirely of lab rats. It was already happening when the lockdowns began. This group does essential work, while that group does non-essential work. This medical procedure is elective and thus delayed, while that one can go ahead. This industry can continue on as normal, while this one must shut down until we say otherwise. There's nothing about this system that's consistent with any modern sense of how we want to live. He says, we went full medieval indeed, ending arts, sports, museums, travel, access to normal medical services, and even putting an end to dentistry for a few months. The poor have suffered so much. Medieval indeed. And Jeff Tucker says, in light of all this, he has come to have the highest respect for Sunetra Gupta's cry to completely rethink the way we handle social theory in the presence of pathogens. She posits what she calls a social contract for infectious diseases, She explains it's not a document, but rather an endogenous and evolutionary in light of what we've learned about pathogens over the centuries. We agree to live with them and and among them, even as we work to build civilization, 
recognizing the freedom and rights of everyone. Why did we previously insist on terms like human rights and freedoms? It's because we believed they were inalienable. That is, they cannot be taken away regardless of the excuse. We baked these ideas into our laws, constitutions, institutions, and into our civic codes, found in pledges, songs, and traditions. The social contract we practice with regard to the threat of infectious diseases is that we manage them intelligently while never trampling on the dignity of the human person. The payoff is that our immune systems get stronger, enabling all of us to live longer and healthier lives. Not just some of us, not just the legally privileged, not just those with access to platforms to speak, but rather every single member of the human community. And he says, we made that deal many centuries ago. We've practiced it for hundreds of years which is why we've never before experienced draconian and near-universal lockdowns of essential social functioning. But this year, we broke the deal. We shattered and smashed the social contract. And so Jeffrey A. Tucker says it's not surprising at all that a medieval approach to disease would also result in the deletion of so many modern advances in social, political understanding and consensus. It was reckless to the point of being evil. It has created a new feudalism of haves and have-nots, essentials and unessentials, us and them, the served and the servers, the rulers and the ruled. All defined in the edicts, passed by panicked dictators at all levels, acting on the advice of bloodless intellectuals who couldn't resist a chance to rule the world by force. He says, one final note, bless those who call this out and refuse to go along. Now, I don't know if that strikes you as being... You know, is, is he engaging in hyperbole? I don't think he is. I think he stripped away whatever sugarcoating we might otherwise apply to say, yeah, it's, you know, this has been hard for some people and maybe not as hard for others. But I think he's drawing a very fair comparison. And the injustice that strikes me the hardest is the idea that the people who are making these kinds of decisions that deny people their lives and their livelihoods are sheltered from the consequences of those decisions. They never miss a paycheck. More than that, they have throngs of armed bodyguards surrounding them to make sure that should someone take exception or want to say no, they can't. The entire political system has rallied to protect them and shield them from responsibility. Lawmakers passing, you know, bills, you can't sue us for the stupid decisions we made. I don't know, maybe Tar and Feathers is going to make a comeback. I hope it doesn't come to that, but we're going medieval. Might as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show.